Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. The scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. I will read the first verse, and then you join in with me on the second verse, and continue with me every other verse. That's Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Would you please stand if we read these verses? Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, and John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this beautiful day. We thank you for the opportunity to learn your word and together, assemble together. We thank you for all this. And we thank you and ask that your blessing be upon the pastor as he delivered the message. We ask this in our Lord, Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. We've been in for the last year or so, and uh, we're about to wrap up the model prayer in chapter 11, very famous teaching of Jesus on prayer uh, we've been looking at for the last several weeks. Uh, Today, we're going to focus our attention on the very last line of the prayer, which is found in verse 4, which says, lead us not into temptation. If you uh, add the account of Matthew of this same prayer, you'll find that he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Or uh, some have pointed out this adjective could be seen substantively for you grammar people. Uh, And so you could translate it, deliver us from the evil one, referring to Satan. Has it ever struck you that the wording of this prayer is quite unusual? Uh, We understand asking God to help us resist temptation to sin. We understand if, if we ask God to keep us from being tempted in the first place, but why would we need to ask him not to lead us into temptation. In other words, is that something God does? Uh, Why would we need to ask him, don't lead us into temptation? Before we attempt to answer that question, I want to point out that the word that Luke uses here for temptation is a neutral word. Uh, Parasmos in Greek, it it doesn't exactly mean enticement to sin. It refers to testing one's character. Uh, this This word is actually used in classical Greek literature of a medical test to prove health or disease. Obviously, the test uh, isn't meant to make somebody sick. It's supposed to reveal whether you are healthy or sick. And so it might be better to understand this verse as, lead us not into testing, uh, or perhaps don't let us fail when we're tested. Now, to answer our question, uh, what does this mean? Does does God tempt us to sin? I want to start in James chapter 1, verse 13, where James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Seems pretty straightforward. God does not tempt anyone to sin. Verse 14, 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, uh, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so there you see the progression of sin. It starts out with our inward desire uh, to do something wrong. And if that desire is not stopped, it will eventually produce uh, us committing that sin. And so God didn't make you do it. Uh, God didn't make you sin. And by the way, the devil didn't make you do it either. Uh, you sin because you want to sin. Uh, every sin that you or I commit is an inside job. Uh, God does not tempt us to sin. So first point, no, God does not tempt us. Second point, yes, God does tempt us. I really enjoy sometimes stating things as direct opposites, just to confuse you for a minute. But uh, I'm going to go to 2 Samuel 24. This may be something that uh, you're thinking of as I'm saying emphatically, God does not tempt us to sin. Uh, you Bible scholars may be thinking that the red flag is going up. Well, what about David numbering the people? We're going to address that. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now, we're not going to get into why that was a sin for David to do. It's very clear in the text that it was. It was wrong for him to do this. But just notice in verse 1 there that God was the one who incited David to do this thing that he later punishes him for. It was a sin. The Lord enticed or incited David to sin in numbering the people. Now, let me confuse you just a little bit more. First Chronicles 21, uh, this is the same story in a different book of the Bible. Okay, and this says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, that's confusing. One account says God pushed David or enticed David to do this. And the other account says Satan was the one who did this. At this point, I need to once again quote a famous line from Martin Luther. He said, even the devil is God's devil. Uh, that may sound like a strange statement, but I think it's true. Satan cannot operate outside of God's providence, his sovereignty, because nothing is outside of God's providence. We tend to think of God and Satan as equals, uh, battling it out, versus, you know, good versus evil, and they're on a, on a level playing field, or at least they're really close, and nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible teaches that everything Satan does is under the sovereign control of God. Uh, read the book of Job, for instance. Satan doesn't just go and tempt Job. He first presents himself to God and gets permission. And God tells Satan, okay, you can do whatever you want to Job, just don't hurt him physically. Uh, Satan tempts Job and Job doesn't sin. And so Satan comes back to God to get permission to hurt Job physically. And God says, okay, you can hurt him physically, but you're not allowed to kill him. And so you see, uh, Satan has to get God's permission to do anything. And God sets the parameters for the devil's actions. Even the devil is God's devil. And so God did not tempt David directly to number Israel. He used Satan. Satan tempted David, but with God's permission. He was acting under God's control. No one is tempted by God, yet God is sovereign over all of our temptations. If you doubt what I'm saying is true, listen to 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, before I dissect that verse, let me just ask a simple question. Uh, how is that possible 
unless God is in control of our temptations? How can God say, I'm not going to let you be tempted uh, beyond your capacity to endure? How can that be true unless God is sovereign over our temptations? If the devil has free reign to do whatever he wants and he tempts you all the time and, and God really wishes he, he would stop, but he can't do anything about it. If that's the case, how can Paul say God is trustworthy? He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to endure. The only way God can promise that my temptations are all resistible is if he's vetoing any that aren't. He will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. And so God examines Satan's plans just like he did with Job. God approves some and says no to others. In other words, God governs all of your temptations. He will not allow you to be tempted to sin to the degree that you cannot avoid it. And this leads to the last part of uh, the text in Matthew, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Not only lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from Satan's temptations. Don't let me fall into his traps. Rescue me from the temptations that you allow to enter my life. And this, is, uh, this verse in 1 Corinthians 10 is often misunderstood at this point. Uh, you see there at the end that it says God will provide with the temptation a way of escape. Uh, that doesn't mean there's something's going to miraculously happen and you're just going to be spared from having to resist that temptation. No, the way of escape is the last sentence, that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so the way of escape is not some way out of the temptation. It's resisting and enduring the temptation and not giving way to it. And so Charles Spurgeon uh, rephrased the prayer this way. He said, Lord, do not try us and test us more than is absolutely necessary. For we are so apt to fall. Lead us not into temptation, but if we be tempted, deliver us from evil. If some good end is to be answered by our being thus tested, then let it be so. But, O oh Lord, deliver us from evil, especially from the evil one. Suffer us not to fall into his hands in the hour of temptation. So deliverance from temptation is found through resisting. Uh, Jesus provided us the perfect example of this in Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And just, by the way, notice there, Jesus was led by God's Spirit into this temptation. Okay, so God didn't tempt him directly, no, but he did lead him into this time of being tempted by Satan. And so uh, he was tempted for 40 days. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And then Luke highlights three specific temptations, beginning with verse 3. The devil said to him, to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And then verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Again, Jesus quotes from <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6. Verse 9, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is written, <clears throat> you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And there again, quoting Deuteronomy 6. 
Uh, by the way, hold on to that last one. We're going to refer back to it later. Satan brings Jesus to the edge of the temple and says, throw yourself off of here uh, because God will save you. God will protect you. Really show your trust in God by jumping off of this building. And Jesus says, no, that's not trusting God. That's testing God. We are not supposed to put God to the test. Uh, verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus' way of escape from Satan's temptation was to endure it, to resist it. Nobody came in and rescued him from it. He resisted for 40 days the constant temptations of Satan, and then the devil left him for a season. And so deliverance is found through endurance or resisting temptation. Secondly, deliverance from sin is found through Scripture. Uh, you see that in, in Jesus' own account there. He keeps referring back to Scripture every time that Satan brings a new temptation. And by the way, I don't mean by this, uh, when you're tempted to sin, go grab your Bible and read for an hour. Okay, that may work for you. That doesn't work for me. Uh, if you wait until the time when temptation comes to be in Scripture, you've waited too late. Jesus didn't have a Bible with him in the wilderness. He was relying on the Scriptures he had read and meditated on and memorized, obviously, in this text, as he keeps quoting them. Uh, his mind was so saturated by Scripture that he was able to have power to resist temptation. Don't expect to have power over temptation if you're not in God's Word regularly. We all desperately need a regular intake of Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so deliverance from temptation is found first through endurance, second through Scripture, third through prayer. And that's really the focus of what our text in Luke is about. Jesus said to his disciples, this is just prior to the crucifixion, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak and susceptible to falling. And the act of praying helps strengthen us for the battle with the evil one. Now this may bring up another question that you're thinking. As I'm talking about God's sovereignty, even over our temptation, that he does not allow you to be tempted beyond your capacity, but he does allow some temptations. You may be wondering, well, why? Why does God allow us to be tempted? Why does God allow Satan to tempt us from sin? He, he knows when we're going to give in to it, so why does he let it happen? Why does he make us put up with this? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer. I have three uh, answers, all of which I believe are true, but maybe only one or two of them will be helpful to you. So here they are. Uh, first, it is for our good. It strengthens us. Job 23, verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. I am backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. This is Job speaking in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his uh, severe temptations from Satan. And he's saying, I'm looking all around, and I don't see God in this at all. I don't perceive his work. I know he's working, but I don't see it. Verse 10, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. Uh, Job is saying, I know that if I hold fast to God's will, if I don't give in to this temptation, I will come through it stronger. God is working on me even through this. Uh, like a coach makes a, a basketball player run suicides or run the bleachers or something terrible like that. And you think, uh, why is he doing this to me? He just hates me. No, he's trying to make you stronger. It is for your benefit. It may seem like punishment now, but ultimately it's for our good. 
2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul is telling us here that he has experienced some sort of harassment from Satan. And he recognized that God had allowed it in his life to help keep Paul humble. Verse 8, he goes on to say, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God allows us to be tempted for our good. It makes us weak, and thus we have to depend on him. So temptation, first of all, is for our good. Secondly, it's for his glory. Our response to temptation demonstrates if God is the supreme love of our life. Nothing shows your love for God like resisting temptation in obedience to his will. Jesus was led into the wilderness for these 40 days of intense temptation, not so he could fail. God knew when he led Jesus into that, he was going to come through it and, and resist the temptation and glorify God through that. He brought the Father glory by resisting the temptations of Satan. It proved the depths of Jesus' love and submission to his Father. Every time Satan tried to trip him up, Jesus would just say, uh, It is written, my, my Father said this, I can't do what you're tempting me to do because my Father said this. And in resisting temptation, Jesus glorified the Father. Third point, every temptation is a test. Remember at the beginning we said that Greek word parosmus, it's a neutral word. It doesn't necessarily mean enticement to sin. It can also mean uh, testing. One has a negative connotation. Temptation is usually thought of as enticing for the purpose of getting someone to sin. Testing has a positive connotation. A teacher doesn't test his students so that they will fail. <laughs> That's not the point. It is for their benefit. And so no matter what happens in our life, it's all a test from God and a temptation from Satan. And the difference there is their intention. A God's will is that we would resist, endure the testing, uh, pass the test, and be stronger for it, and bring him glory by so doing. Uh, Satan's intention, of course, is that we would fall in, the time, of tempt in uh, the, the time of temptation. And this is true of both good things and bad things that come into our life. When good things happen... God is testing us. Will we thank God for that good thing? Will we see this as a good gift from the hand of God, and will this cause us to draw closer to him? That's a positive test. And when good things happen simultaneously, Satan's intention is to get us to idolize that good thing and forget about God. And every pain that we endure, God is testing if we're going to trust him. And at the same time, throughout our pain, Satan is tempting us to curse him like he did Job. And so this prayer for God not to lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it's a prayer that's basically saying, God, in, in all of your tests that you lead us into, don't let Satan win. Don't let us fail and take his route, but rather let us pass these tests. Help us to live today in a way that is pleasing to you. One more clarification on this point, and then we'll uh, try to see what this has to do with Easter. Remember the third temptation of Jesus we looked at a few minutes ago. I said, when we talked about the prayer for our, our daily needs to be met, remember that uh, line of the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That doesn't excuse you 
from a responsibility to go work, <laughs> right? We can't just say, God, would you provide my needs? And then we sit at home on our couch watching television and expect uh, our bills to be paid. No, that's not the point. Uh, that is just like Jesus, if he were to have jumped off the building and say, God, catch me. Uh, that is testing God. That is not trusting God. And likewise, it would be wrong-headed of us to think that we are just to pray that God would help us not to fall into temptation to sin, and then we make no effort ourselves to resist temptation. I heard a story about a guy who was having trouble losing weight, so he decided to pray. And he said to God, Lord, if, if it's your will for me not to have donuts today, please don't let there be a parking space in front of Krispy Kreme. And in the end, the man did end up eating his box of donuts because there was a parking space after his eighth time driving around the block. Uh, that's how some of us think about temptation. We pray and ask God, don't lead me into temptation. We expect somehow that he's going to circumvent our having to actually do the hard work of resisting temptation when it comes. We need to balance dependence on God with our personal responsibility to obey the commands of the Bible. Uh, it's not let go and let God. Okay, that's not my favorite phrase. I think that most phrases in popular Christian culture are not my favorite phrases, but let go and let God. It seems to indicate that we just ask God to do something, and then we don't have to worry about doing anything ourselves. We just let it go, and God's going to somehow do this on our behalf. Remember in the Old Testament when Israel conquered the Promised Land, they were, they were told by God, go fight against the Canaanites, and God will give you their land. And we find this phrase used uh, throughout Deuteronomy and Joshua in particular, the Lord will fight for you. You'll, you'll find that repeatedly uh, in those two books. God's go going to destroy your enemies. He's going to give you this land. God will fight for you. For example, Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. When you go out to war against the enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. And here comes the, the Braveheart speech right before the battle. Uh, say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Now, that's great news if you're Israel. Uh, God's going with us. He's going to fight for us against our enemies. He's going to ensure that we are given the victory. Now, here's my question. Does that mean they didn't have to fight? I mean, God said, I I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to give you the victory. So let go and let God, right? We can uh, sit on our horses and God's going to fight for us. No, wrong. The point of this promise wasn't that you can just lay down on the battlefield and God will kill your enemies for you. The point was, God has promised you victory. Now go fight. Israel still had to fight the battles. And likewise, God has told us to ask him for his help in resisting temptation, but we still have a role to play. We cannot achieve victory on our own, but we also can't just sit back after praying and act as though we have no responsibility to fight temptation. Now, uh, Easter. What does this have to do with Easter? This, of course, is a day when uh, millions of Christians around the world celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the, the resurrection of Jesus and his death on the cross are all about what we're talking about today, sin and temptation. Because Jesus died and rose again to free us from sin and temptation. 
Nowhere is this made clearer than in Romans 6 and 7. This is where Paul is describing the life of a true Christian. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this is the doctrine of our union with Christ. That like Jesus died on the cross and rose again, we as Christians, when we become a follower of Christ, we are dying to our old way of living and beginning a new life. Verse 5 continues, If we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now again, that sounds great. We all know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. We no longer have to serve sin. The death of Christ and his resurrection set us free from the power of sin. Great news. Only one problem. I don't know about you, I still struggle with sin. I've been a Christian for many years, and yet there still is a struggle there. And if being a Christian means I never sin again, I must not be a Christian. But of course, we know that's not what Paul is saying. Just one chapter later, Paul writes this about his own struggles with sin. He says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can you relate to that? Paul wanted to do right, yet he felt that he lacked the ability to carry it out all the time. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from, the body, from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. There's a lot to unpack there I don't have time to get into, but Paul is expressing his struggle with sin. And even if you are a true Christian and you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, you will still struggle with sin. When you repent of your sins and you accept Christ as your Lord, your sins are immediately forgiven. And you begin that new life of serving Jesus. And there is a transformation that begins to take place in your life, but it's not complete, this side of heaven. You will still sin. You'll want to do right, but fail to do so sometimes. But, but the life of a Christian, increasingly, you will begin to live more and more in accordance with his will. Our victory over sin is partial now but the direction of our life is towards the righteousness of Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that we're on the winning side. We, we may not experience total victory over sin in this life, but there is coming a day when we will be freed 
from the presence of sin and temptation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Christ was the first to be raised from the dead, and those who belong to Christ, Christians, we will be raised at his coming. <clears throat> Paul goes on to explain in verse 51 <clears throat> what that scene is going to look like. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body <clears throat> must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall, be, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee that we will not be struggling under the power of sin and temptation forever. If we give our lives to Christ and become his followers, we have that hope that there is coming a day when Jesus returns and we are changed, transformed into our glorified bodies. And in that state, we will not have to struggle with temptation to sin any longer. Death will be swallowed up in victory, and sin will be conquered once and for all. And so this Easter Sunday, as we ask God not to lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, to help us resist temptation to sin, we do so with the hope that Christ's resurrection is the sin-destroying power of God. We will one day experience that total victory over sin because Jesus died and rose again. I want to conclude uh, this morning with some just closing thoughts on the model prayer. We spent five weeks, for those of you who've been with us, uh, looking at these first four verses in Luke. We've gone line by line through them. Now I just want to kind of recap some of the main points and uh, conclude this series. First, Jesus teaches in this prayer that our, our praying is more about God than about us. Praying for our desires, if we're honest, is what makes up probably 90% of our prayers. Uh, when we go to pray, the things that come to mind immediately are, God, would you do this for me? Would you give this to me? Would you help me with this? It's all about what we desire. This prayer is really about changing us, not changing God. This isn't a prayer about what we can get from God, how we can get what we want God to do. Prayer is, is not about changing God's mind to get him to do what you want. Prayer is about asking God to help change your thinking to be more like him. Asking for God to forgive you and deliver you from temptation to sin. Asking him to advance his kingdom. All of that is about you desiring the things that God already desires. In other words, we're praying, help me think more like you. I don't need God to think like me. I need to conform my thinking to his will. Here's a, a restatement of the prayer. Father, help me to see you as you are. Help me to treasure you as I should and have a fitting reverence in my heart for your majesty. I pray that your kingdom would advance, that your will would be done increasingly in my life and in the lives of others. And as I go about trying to do your will in my life, grant that my needs 
would be met. Grant that I would have forgiveness as I stumble my way through this day, trying to do your will. And give me guidance and protection so that I can be about this purpose of doing your service. You get that? The heart of the prayer is, God, help me to live for you today. And how different is that than the way we tend to pray? A last thought I'd like to point out is the plural pronouns used in the last three petitions. I pointed this out a few weeks ago. Give us our daily bread. It's not give me my daily bread. Forgive our sins, not just forgive mine. Lead us not into temptation. There is a corporate aspect to this prayer. And at the very least, this should be a prayer, not just for you, but for your brothers in Christ and your local church. You should ask that their needs would be met, that their sins would be forgiven, that they would have power in resisting temptation. And I wonder, as a church, how much stronger we would be spiritually if we started praying this way for one another. And so as we look back at the model prayer, keep these truths in mind. I cannot say our if I live only for myself. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor each day to live like his child. I cannot say hallowed be your name if I'm playing around with sin. I cannot say your kingdom come if I'm not allowing God to reign in my life. I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I'm trusting in myself instead of in God's provision. I cannot say, forgive us our sins if I'm holding a grudge or withholding forgiveness from someone else. And I cannot say, lead us, into, lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself in its path. I wonder what would praying like this every morning as you start your day, uh, what, what effect would that have on our lives? How would that cause you to live differently if each morning you began with this prayer of dedication of your day to living the will of your Father? and a request that he would help and guide you along that way. This is not a prayer about changing God. It's not a prayer about, God, would you change my circumstances? Would you fix that person or that, uh, that situation in my life? Instead, this is about, God, fix me. I'm yours today. Would you do your work through me? Let me challenge each person in this room. Start your day with this prayer. Make this model prayer a part of the rhythm of your life, that every day you begin by yielding yourself to God's will. Praying through the model prayer helps align our thoughts with the thoughts and priorities of God. And if, if you don't pray much, and by the way, most Christians don't, uh, let me encourage you to start here. This is, this is the training wheels for prayer. Start each day. I mean, what did it take you, 30 seconds to pray through this prayer? Uh, start each day dedicating your life to Christ, dedicating your day to Him, and asking for His help and guidance. One commentator wrote, If we learn to pray as Jesus instructs us, we will focus on the Father's purpose. <clears throat> that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom come in all the earth. We'll focus on his family's needs for provision and pardon and protection from sin. Not so that the family will be cozy and happy, but so that the family will have what they need to carry out the Father's purpose. May God teach us to pray like that. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com 
or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.